Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder and my friend, wearing a St. Paul Saints jersey. jersey. Did you get that in St. Paul? Ed Condon, did you get that jersey, Ed, when we went to St. Paul? Uh, no, I didn't. I I was wearing it when we went to St. Paul, um, but I actually, a podcast listener had sent me a St. Paul Saints shirt and hat. Wow, that's cool. Uh, they are. I am. Look, we've been. We visited the Twin Cities more than once. Uh, we've done a live show there, and I have been fairly free and upfront. I am an. Un- You're a St. Paul un- man. Yeah, I'm an unapologetic St. Paul man. Um, you can keep Minneapolis. I'm. I'm going to be hanging out on the other side. No, you're not alone in that. I like St. Paul very much. It's a good place. Good dive bars. Yeah. How you doing, Ed? I'm getting old, JD. Um, I I have had. Uh, so I fight a losing war with my phone. I don't know. You probably have this problem too. Like everyone wants your phone number. Like you can't do anything. You can't buy groceries without them demanding your cell phone number now. Um, so more people than I'm comfortable with, more businesses that I'm comfortable with have my cell phone. And so my, the optician that I got my last eye exam at yeah. has been texting me like three times a week for six months <laughs> saying, you need a new eye exam. You're overdue for an eye exam. You need to come here. And I've been ignoring it, deleting it, reporting it as junk, you know, saying, stop texting me. And in the last week, I have been getting crushing headaches because my nearsight is going and I can no longer read things that I'm holding too close to my face. And it's like, I now, so now I have, I'm in the awkward position of not only do I have constant headaches and I'm, you know, crushing ibuprofen, like there's Skittles, but I, I now also have to go cap in hand to the optician that I was just really But you realize the optician does not know that the optician is texting. The optician isn't sitting at home thinking, I really got to figure out a way to get Ed in here. No, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have any idea of them waiting breathlessly by the phone on a Friday night waiting for my call. But I mean, I'm clear that the person who's going to take my booking is probably... No, a you know, machine been, is sending you that text. Ed. Sure, but there's going to be a note on my file, isn't there? Like, I'm like, <laughs> ah, you, we've been waiting for you, Mr. Thinks You're Too Good for an Eye Exam. So I um, will tell you this. Can I tell I, you a dark secret about why I don't like to get my eyes checked? At uh, least because in this country. you don't like to get them dilated? Nobody does. I don't do it. I just, turn, uh, I just decline it. And I know people are going to write in or whatever and say, don't decline it because you could have glaucoma. But I, um, my I, glocks are just fine, I guess. I, I, don't, I decline it. Wait, what is what is that? What is oh the, no, glaucoma is where they blow on your eye. I don't know why you have to oh, get them dilated, but I decline the dilation. I don't know. I, I do, what is it? What happens when they dilate them? I don't know what why they do it because I don't get. Yeah, it but what is it? What what is that process? I don't put it in a drop or something like that. Oh no, no one's ever tried to do that to me. I don't do it because every optician or optometrist, I guess, that I've gone to insists on having me call them doctor. This is the same with my dentist. Like it's very <laughs> the hierarchy. Like they really want you to know, like. You can, you know, I'm Dr. So-and-so. It's like, and I'm Dr. Condit. What is, can we, you're, I am here for you to basically perform an MOT on my eyes. Like you're going to run me through the machine. You're going to make me read the lines. Like you are a mechanic and that's great. I have all the respect in the world for my mechanic, but he doesn't make me call him doctor. Like I get it. He can hold me up for thousands of dollars, which he's done several times this summer and ditto the optician, ditto my dentist. You know, they, they are all like in in declining order, like these are people who have like a vampiric grip on my credit card. But <laughs> do I have to be condescended to at the same time? Like, come on. It, uh, it just winds me up. My dentist's name is Rick and I call him Rick. My de- I have no idea what my dentist's first name is because I've only ever 
been told and asked to refer to him as doctor. So and so, and I'm not giving his name because he is a really good dentist and a good Catholic. And a Catholic, right? We've got things to talk about here. We can't just be talking about your teeth all day. But your dentist is a good, is a Catholic. He's a very good Catholic man. He's very good Catholic family. I he's he's a wonderful guy. Does a lot of pro bono work. I've got not a bad word to say about him. I just I wouldn't mind it if we could be adults and call each other by our, our first names. Yeah, I, that's how I feel about Rick. Yeah, the dentist. Um, how you doing? Fine. I, I'm doing fine. I'll talk to you about how I'm doing after the show. Okay. Okay, great. Because we want, there are two things we want to talk about. Um, there are two things we want to talk about today. And so I, you know, we got to, we got to move forward. Um, what I want to talk about today, I'm going to announce it right at the top of the show so that we get to them both. I want to talk about the Synod on Synodality and the kind of, um, we're getting very close. I mean, we've been talking about the Synod on Synodality for, it feels like a very long time. We've been talking about the Synod on Synodality almost as long as we've had the pillar. But now we're getting, to the moment, like we're getting to the moment where the synod on synodality is, um, the synod of bishops part of the synod on synodality is on it on, on the cusp of happening. We're almost there. We're so close. So I want to talk about that and some of the eleventh hour wrenches, if you will. But before that, um, I, I want to talk about something that we reported on this week, and actually, I think it's something that we need to talk about kind of seriously. Um, we reported early this week, and I don't know how much we've talked about this on the podcast. Before, as you know, Ed, I have this sort of special grace of forgetting where I don't remember what we talk about from week to week. Um, but I don't think it's what we talked about last week, and I don't think it's what we talked about in the weeks prior. But I know we've talked about it in the past. But we need to talk about our reporting that we did this week on Bishop Joseph Strickland. So we reported on Monday that Pope Francis the first, peace be upon him, had met with um, uh, Cardinal-elect Robert Prevost and Cardinal-elect Christophe Pierre, respectively the prefect for the Congregation for Bishops and the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States, um, on Saturday, where he received a recommendation that he request the resignation of Bishop Joseph Strickland, the recommendation which came after an apostolic visitation to the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, which was conducted in July. That reporting has, I think, um, generated a lot of conversation in the life of the church. Um, has it not? Yes. I don't think you think that it has. I mean, that reporting has generated a lot of conversation yeah. in the life of the church. It's everywhere. People are, people are writing about it. People are talking about it. People are cutting feverish YouTube videos. Um, it is, it is, a, it is a hot topic of conversation and I, I understand why, because Bishop Joseph Strickland is, um, He's many things on the sort of Episcopal bingo card of of hot topic issues. Uh, he's lighting up the board. He is a. I mean, often I I am the first person to criticize people who say, "Oh, such and such is anti Francis." You know, it's like I, that's a. It's a often it's often used in an extremely broad, as an extremely broad brush. Well, it's often just used to refer to a bishop who is neither anti anything in particular or has said anything particular about the Pope. Yeah, I mean, it's right. it's it's a completely vacuous expression, mostly used by you know, Twitter trolls, but, uh, and occasionally members of the college of Cardinals, but that's a different point. <laughs> um, but in, in Bishop Strickland's case, I mean, he's, he's said in, in type face, like he, he has typed out the words himself that Pope Francis has an agenda to subvert the doctrine of the church and then pressed play on that. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know, and I wouldn't want to suggest that Bishop Strickland um, manifests personal animus towards the Pope, but I mean, he is a him, at least in in some things by by his own admission, and and that's that's pretty bold uh, all on its own. Bishop Strickland himself has uh, also 
you know, frequently inserts himself um, into into sort of hot topic uh, issues in the church in the United States. There was the business um, when the L.A. Dodgers decided to honor the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Um, everyone in the church was against that, viewed it and spoke of it as the as the horror show and affront to to the church, to women religious, um, to all of it that it was. And, you know, Archbishop Gomez uh, wanted prayers of reparation, so did the USCCB, but Bishop Strickland went further and, you know, he was there at a rally, a prayer rally outside mm-hmm. of the stadium on the night, even though the Archdiocese of Los Angeles said, yeah, that's not, we don't want that. We're, we're not we're supporting not part it, of, yeah. We're not supporting yeah. that. The president of the USCCB said to you, he I encouraging think. Ca- he had told me that he didn't, he wasn't encouraging Catholics to attend it. Yeah. So, so Bishop Strickland out is, on the step was, if nothing else, out of step with uh, with his brother bishops. Well, but it's not just that he was out of step. <clears throat> Wherever they tend to be on a thing, Bishop Strickland tends to be, you know, ten paces forward. Um, you know, when the bishops talk about um, issues around uh, forming consciousness of faithful citizenship, when it's you know an election year, things like that. But Bishop Strickland will often lend his voice to either overtly or certainly adjacent political events and things. Um, he's just out there loud and proud a lot more than a lot of bishops on a lot of contentious issues and in a lot of places that not necessarily everyone thinks is the is the place for for the hierarchy. So there's all of that going on. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, it's totally understandable why people are talking about Bishop Strickland. They are talking about the prospect of him being asked for his resignation. They are talking about how he might react to such a request if it is made. Well, just um, to be clear, I think you mean it's perfectly understandable that people are having this conversation, not that from, I mean, is it from your perspective perp- perfectly understandable from those things that the Holy See is thinking about asking Bishop Strickland from his resignation? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Just, not I at all. Just want to clarify I, that. Right. No, no, no. I, no, the, the conversation that you mentioned, you know, people are talking about it. People are talking about yeah. that story that we reported. I totally understand why people are talking about it. I totally understand why Bishop Strickland and his future is a topic of conversation in the life of the church right now. It makes total sense to me. Um, I, I, I don't, from my own uh, point of view, think any of that apart from his tweets about the Holy Father, which is a separate issue, which we can go into if you want. Uh, but those to one side, I don't think any of the rest of that is is cause for a conversation at the Holy See about requesting his resignation. Of course, alongside all of this and behind it and underneath it is there was an apostolic visitation of his diocese. And while everyone liked to make a lot of sound of fury about, you know, ah, the anti-Francis bishop is getting the Inquisition. Um, you know, everyone we've talked to in the Diocese of Tyler and around the Diocese of Tyler, that ain't that ain't what the visitation was about. It was about real diocesan-based yeah, issues I, of I mean, governance and administration. Yeah, I think that's right. It is true. Everyone who we have talked with in the Diocese of Tyler, people who work in the chancery, people who work adjacent to the chancery, members of the presbyterate, have all said, yeah, there are serious administrative issues in the Diocese of Tyler. There are problems with the administration of schools. There are problems with the financial administration of the diocese. There are problems with Bishop Strickland's own presence in the diocese to be attentive to the things, you know, the ordinary sort of life of the church. But I think as much as we hear that from people, you know, in the Diocese of Tyler, there's a lot of pushback to the idea that the apostolic visitation is about that. Because Bishop Strickland, as you say, has become, over the past few years, I saw him kind of coined at LifeSite News recently as, quote, America's bishop. I think over the past few years, maybe since probably since 2017 or 2018, Bishop Strickland's profile in the American church has risen dramatically for the bishop of a of a relatively small diocese in Tyler, you know, in Texas. No one could name 
very few people could name the Bishop of San Angelo, Texas, um, or even the Bishop of Amarillo, Texas, um, or you're making eyes. No, I'm wondering if I could. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's my point is I'm not sure you could name the Bishop of San Angelo, Texas. Do you want to try? Okay, so that's that's my point, right? Or no, I was thinking you were to go to several other dioceses on the board in Texas. So like, well, I could I could name the Bishop of Brownsville. I could name the Bishop of Fort Worth. I could name the Bishop. <laughs> right, because those dioceses have been in the news. But in terms of relatively small dioceses of Texas, um, you know, there are any number um, that I, I think that many people probably who are involved in the life of the church maybe couldn't even name the Bishop of Austin, Texas. And um, Austin is, I think, the capital of Texas, is it not? Uh, yes, it is. It is so, the state capital. Yeah. So the point is, for the bishop of a relatively small bishop, diocese of Texas, Bishop Strickland's profile has grown dramatically over the past few years. And again, as I said, I saw him styled recently as on LifeSite News as America's bishop. And the reason for that is because Bishop Strickland has been an outspoken voice on issues that people care about. Um, agree with what he says or don't. Bishop Strickland has been outspoken about McCarrick. Bishop Strickland has been outspoken about pro-life issues. Bishop Strickland has been outspoken about clerical sexual abuse. Bishop Strickland has been outspoken about politicians and uh, pro-choice politicians and Holy Communion. Bishop Strickland has been outspoken about the anxiety that people have about the Francis pontificate in various ways. So again, agree with the substance or not, Bishop Strickland has often been, I think in the perception of many people, one of the only bishops sort of speaking into those issues. And so he has, his profile has grown dramatically. I remember in 2018, there was a bishop's meeting in which Bishop Strickland sort of made a number of interventions about the, the um, you know, wanting to make sure that, like sort of standing up during the bishop's conference meeting and wanting to make sure that the bishop sort of spoke on McCarrick and wanting to make sure that the bishop spoke on uh, pro-abortion politicians and Holy Communion, you know, even when those weren't the topics of discussion. And those things have made Bishop Strickland's profile grow. And very honestly, Bishop Strickland has been kind of championed by a set of like media, like media outlets and organizations. Call them media adjacent, but okay. Uh, yeah, set of media adjacent outlets, that's fine. And organizations which have sort of taken him up as their champion, such that for a lot of people, and again, and I think that you and I would say that there's a lot to sort of take pause about the way that Bishop Strickland has addressed those issues. And I hope that our own orthodoxy is not in dispute, but I think, you know, there's, you and I might say there's a lot of pause about the way Bishop Strickland has engaged in those issues. But for a lot of people, he has come to represent because of his active social media presence, like the pro-life and orthodox Catholic sort of champion or a person who's willing to speak on those issues. And all of that plays into, all of that fits into a broader American narrative that's happening right now in which institutional disaffiliation is rampant and in which as people have increasing distrust in institutions in which they once had trust and identity, they are more likely to have sort of trust and institute and uh, like affiliative identity with populist figures, right? Yes. Going on from what you were just saying, I think there's also something to be said for um, Bishop Strickland, as you say, striking a, a sort of populist tone and very much appealing to a populist audience. On the other hand, I think also his rise has been in no small part assisted, his rise as a sort of totemic public figure in the Church of the United States, has been assisted in no small part by the fact that whether you think he does it um, rightly or wrongly or elegantly or inelegantly or intelligently or intelligibly, um, he speaks directly and with clarity to a set of issues constantly that most Catholics that I talk to would like to hear addressed right. by the yep. bishops. That's right. That's and right. when he makes these interventions, other people don't stand up to 
you know, challenge his points if they disagree with them or amplify them or improve on them if they think they could be said better, but they tend to agree with the sort of drift of it. They all look at him like he just farted in church. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that that feeds the rise. Like there, there is, I think, um, a, there has been an atmosphere, I think, in the U.S. Bishops' Conference meetings that I've attended where Bishop Strickland has made a number of interventions from the floor where everyone's just kind of like, oh, yeah. Joe's out of his chair again. Everyone just ignore him and, you know, he'll sit back down eventually. And, you know, that it's not working um, if that's the plan. Right. But it's a very kind of Episcopal reaction to a problem. Like, again, I'm not. Well, it's there's a, often a, a way in which bishops do not like to fraternally sort of correct or engage with other bishops. It's, I think, more of the in the disposition of sort of the American Episcopal character to say, yeah, he's kind of out there, but I'm you sure. know, paying attention to my own thing or whatever. I, I agree, but the point I'm making, point I'm trying to make, is other, which is, it's not just that they're trying to ignore Strickland; it's that they're ignoring the issues he's speaking to very often. Right? Yeah, no, I think that's and right. That's not good. Yeah, because Even if there's an if there's a crying need, if there's a desire from a large swath of the church to hear their shepherds speak about a set of issues, and nobody's willing to address them, they're going to end up listening to the only guy who's talking. Right. I think that's right. That's right. You know, if the news doesn't report the facts on issues that people want to hear about and they aren't reporting the stories that people want to know about, they're going to end up listening to nutcases on YouTube because that's the only people who are going to give them anything on the subject. In the context of that, um, as Bishop Strickland's profile has been amplified because he has spoken about topics that I think you're right, people want to hear about, um, he has more often sort of embraced controversial positions, controversial positions in which he has seemed to sort of endorse uh, at various times. I think he had tweets which seemed to sort of endorse the January 6th stuff. And more recently, his, his, you know, his approach to talking about the Holy Father has become more controversial, kind of culminating in this bit of um, tweeting in which he says, you know, I'll, uh, I oppose the Holy Father's agenda of undermining the deposit of faith, right? Which we, I think we discussed at the time and certainly we wrote about it. And I think I I certainly concluded, and I think you did too, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that that, I, I felt there was a very clear potential penal case there. I mean, it is a crime to incite contempt for the apostolic see. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, I'm not saying there's a, there's an open and shut case to convict, but I'm saying if I was a promoter of justice in the Vatican, I'd look at that and say, I'll, I'll prosecute that case. There's the possibility. I'll take my chances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these things have happened sort of, you're right. I think Bishop Strickland has risen because people want to hear about the things that he's talking about. And a lot, of, and you know, there are a lot of bishops who aren't talking about them or there are bishops who are talking about them, but less um, directly. And I think, you know, there are bishops who are very honestly talking about these things with a level of nuance that may be appropriate to them, but people I think uh, people want to hear. I don't want to just endorse the idea that no bishop is talking about these things and so Bishop Strickland's the only one who's talking about them. Sometimes just no bishops are saying what people want to hear. You know what I mean? It's the situation of the sort of filial piety and deference to the Holy Father at times when the Holy, when what the Holy Father sort of teaches or engages with is extremely difficult to sort of navigate. It's extremely difficult to, ha- to navigate how to be a Catholic in those circumstances, which we've talked about on this show ad nauseum. But I think what people, I think there's a way in which um, we will resist the way the Holy Father undermining the positive faith more inflames or confirms the passions than, boy, it's difficult to understand how to have appropriate filial piety when there are things happening in Rome that give you serious pause or reservations, right? I mean, just which yeah. one of those is likely to, 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 to do well in the algorithms of social media? For sure. Yeah. But again, which one is likely to 
actually act as a helpful pastoral. Right, sure. No, I, exactly. Right. So, um, no, but I mean, so one of the things that, um, you, you, um, one of the, so I think, you know, you were asking, do I, did I think that, or to clarify whether or not I was saying that, um, it was reasonable because of all of this for people at, for example, the congregation for bishops to be discussing, um, advising the Pope to request Strickland's resignation, or at least presenting that to him as an option. Uh, and I said, with the exception of the, the penal manner of inciting odium of the, of the Holy See, uh, I didn't think so, but. I think it was a sort of wider angle lens sort of moving um, adjacent to, you know, this is Bishop Strickland is also a signifier of a wider trend, yeah. which we've seen in the last 10 years, which is bishops just get canned all the time now. And that's really weird that it used to be not vanishingly rare, but it was rare on a global scale for a bishop to be asked to resign by the Pope or, um, straight up removed from office. I mean, the straight up removal from office is still fairly rare. Um, I think it's only happened once in Pope Francis's time as Pope that I'm aware of. Martin Holly. No, Martin Holly. I, I think he, everyone's, I mean, he was effectively fired, but, but did they, I, seem I don't to think Bishop Holly resigned. I think he did. I think his final public statement, I mean, he was when it was reported that he had gone, it was reported that he was fired. That's how it was presented to the media. But I think his last public statement on the effect was, I was told the Holy Father wanted me to resign, so of course I did because- nope. October 24th, 2018, the Holy, the Holy See announced that Pope Francis had relieved Bishop Holly from pastoral government of the diocese. I, I understand that that's what the Holy See presented it as, but I'm saying I think there was a subsequent public statement by Bishop Holly in which he said, I was told I the Pope wanted me gone, and so of course I resigned. I, I'm i going from memory here. But okay. I'm, Anyways, I'm just, it's one half dozen of the other. Well, that, but this is largely this is my point, is I think that the only one I could think of for sure, I mean, Martin Holly perhaps, but also the Bishop, the, the Bishop of Arecibo in Puerto Rico yeah. the other year. Um, but again, while the instance of the Pope you know, directly and explicitly depriving a bishop of their see is still very rare. We have got to a point where it's like, you know, resignation, removal, whatever. It's six to one half dozen the other. You know, if you're if you're told you can, you know, you can take the gentleman's way out or you can make us do this the messy way, it, it, you're still being fired. Um, and that is a strange reversion uh, in practice, I don't know to what extent this is, you know, representative of an actual school of thought and ecclesiology, either in the Congregation for Bishops in the Vatican more widely, or in the mind of Pope Francis himself. I don't know, um, but it is a manifestation of a very sort of Vatican One ecclesiology on the uh, office of bishop. And I think even um, Bishop Strickland has kind of said something to this effect. I think in the last couple of days, I think he told somebody that. Um, you know, he serves at the pleasure of the Pope, effectively, is how he sees it. and Which is really can, not the ecclesiology of the Second Vatican Council or the way that It Christ is not the ecclesiology of the Second Vatican Council and how it views yeah. the office of the diocesan bishop, that a bishop is the is the apostle, is the successor to the apostles, yep. is the bishop of his diocese. Yep. Um, but that's not how, um, that's not how it's been lived in the last uh, couple of years. It certainly doesn't, you know, I, I and I think the first real... Um, hammer blow to the ecclesiology of Vatican II. And this came in, I think it was 2016, when Pope Francis promulgated a law that a lot of people took to be a dead letter. But, um, you know, it's it's almost never explicitly invoked, yeah. but its provisions are used all the time. 
uh, even if no one writes down invoking the norms of this law, which was come on a madre more vole, uh, which in which Pope Francis issued this motu proprio that basically said there are a whole lot of reasons and some very, very broad and very flexibly interpretable categories of reasons why the Pope might choose to deprive a bishop of his diocese. Uh, and I mean, it basically, and I'm not really paraphrasing here, basically said if he is found to have done harm, right. be it moral, physical, or spiritual, uh, it was to not anyone. as close as, you know, you can, the, there's the, the, the process for removing a pastor, the bishop has to have some reason for removing a pastor, but one of those reasons can be that the pastor has become ineffective in his pastoral ministry, even for no fault of his own. Yes. You know, so a pastor who loses his reputation or the respect of the community can, re- can be resigned or can be removed rather, even, even, you know, if he didn't do anything. Comayuna Madre wasn't that far, but it was relatively broad. Right. But I mean... The the difference is I'm actually yeah I mean coming out didn't go that far but it basically said if the if the if the investigating authority uh, which I would assume to be the dicastery for bishops is the I intent so. um, determines that the bishop has done harm to his diocese or to members of his diocese be it moral spiritual or physical he can be removed and like that's a that's a very broad category you know. Yeah. You know, arguably, a bishop who closes a parish does harm to the parishioners of that of right, some right, kind. Exactly. It's a spiritual harm. Now, you can argue whether it's meant a prudential judgment, and you know, the harm is inevitable because of shifting demographics in the diocese, and this is the most prudent course of governance. But again, that's an in, that's open to interpretation. Yeah. Um, so that there is that. I mean, you mentioned that this isn't you know quite as far as a pastor, but of course, a pastor is dependent on the bishop for his role and in his ministry. Yeah. That a pastor, a priest of the diocese, is spiritually and sacramentally dependent on his bishop. Yeah. Um, you know, he enjoys the faculty to hear confessions and to absolve sins by virtue of his link, legal right. and sacramental with his bishop. A, ba- right. a priest is not um ipso jure empowered to uh, hear confessions and absolve sins outside of danger of death and things like that. He requires the faculty to sort of activate the latent sacramental potential to do it that comes with his ordination. And that comes from his bishop. Um, this is not true of a bishop with regards to the Pope and the governance of his diocese, right. that to remain in communion with the Catholic Church, he has to be in communion, of course, with the head of the College of Bishops, the Pope, and the other members of the College of Bishops. But that communion is not um, of the same nature as a priest is dependent upon his bishop. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're, in a sense, equally important. Yeah, I'm not saying that a bishop excommunicating himself or breaching communion and going into schism or whatever is a lesser deal. Uh, Certainly it's not, but it's a different nature. It's of a different order. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know if we're going to get to the Synod on Synodality, because I think there's a lot more to talk about here. my surprise. (laughs) I think there's a lot more to talk about here, but it is time for us to go to commercial. And then we're going to come back, because we're going to talk about sort of the the ongoing challenges, like the public perception of this, and then I think what some of the unseen ongoing challenges are. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Decided Excellence Catholic Media. Decided Excellence Catholic Media is a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. There are parishes all over this country which have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazine. Parishioners, as you know, love them because the magazines communicate the good works of a parish, they strengthen community, and they've even brought parishioners back to Mass. 
That's right. What a parish magazine can offer that a bulletin or a social media presence can't is that a, a magazine can mail to 100% of your registered parishioners, not just those who are coming into mass and remember to grab a bulletin at the end or those who follow your Facebook account or, or whatever else it is. Uh, it can also reach non-registered and non-practicing Catholics who live within the territory of the parish to invite them back into the life of the community. You don't have to worry about it getting lost in an algorithm. You don't have to shrink your message to fit into a character limit or whatever else. And how does this work? Each magazine features a family from the parish, and it can also highlight parish ministries, projects, special events that are going on. Parishes can produce um, their own evangelization and catechetical content, but they can supplement them because Decided Excellence has got a library with articles from Bishop Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, and other places that they can use to supplement the content of the magazine and, and build it out to look the way they want and have what and they want in it what they do that's really cool. Decided Excellence Catholic Media has an editorial and design team that can guide a parish through the design process each month and ensure that the content is professional and attractive. The Decided Excellence team trains a parish representative to organize content. Um, after the content is organized, uh, the parish representative just sends it off to a staff of professional designers and editors who ensure that the magazine that's produced is beautiful and high in quality. We have talked at, with bishops and pastors who, since hearing about Decided Excellence on the Pillar podcast, have tried it out in their parishes or in their dioceses, and we've heard them say how happy they are about this. Like, I like Decided Excellence, and the reason I like Decided Excellence is because my friends who are in parish and pastoral ministry tell me, yeah, this is a good product for, for us. This has really worked for us. This has filled a niche. This has done something that we knew we needed to do, but we didn't know how to do it. So if, if you think that's good for your parish, go to decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more. Talk to your priest, your parish staff, fellow parishioners about bringing a parish magazine to your parish, decidedexcellence.com slash parish. Decided Excellence, Catholic Media. Ed, we are back after that decidedly excellent commercial break. And uh, we've got more. We're talking about the situation of Bishop Joseph Strickland in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. And we've been talking about, about sort of this, the 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 what Bishop Strickland represents in various ways and what this situation represents in various ways. There are two things that I think we should talk about um, now that uh, that I think are worth noting. One is, um, you know, while this goes on um, nationally and while sort of Catholic websites and um, editorialists sort of opine on Bishop Strickland and what he represents and what his disagreement with the Pope uh, represents and, and these kinds of things. And while you and I talk about these canonical questions pertaining to the autonomy of a bit, the relative autonomy of a bishop and his position in his ecclesiastical office, all of these things are, I think, for Catholics outside the Diocese of Strickland, a relatively abstract phenomenon. If I may. And, what's the that? The Diocese of Tyler. What did I say? The Diocese of Strickland. Okay, well, you take Perhaps that. Perhaps well encapsulating exactly the problem that you are pointing to. You take that for what it's worth. All all of these, for those of us who are outside the Diocese of Strickland, all of those are relatively abstract phenomena. And um, and I think that even, you know, even people who feel like they have followed Bishop Strickland and, and even the many, many Catholics who feel like Bishop Strickland represents something that's important to them. And, you know, I think there are people who are on all points on a spectrum of that. People who say Bishop Strickland is right on the money 100%. People who say, you know, then there are lots of people who say Bishop Strickland is way off the reservation. But then there are people who say Bishop Strickland seems to be a bit off the reservation or a bit touched, but he also is saying things that I think are important or he's representing something. So there's just, a, I think, a broad sort of range of um, perspectives on this. I, I think that's true. I think they're probably also, I mean, <laughs> this is another thing that we have to constantly bear in mind is... Uh, 
I I question how many mass going Catholics in the United States have ever heard of Bishop Joseph Strickland yeah, or the Diocese of Tyler. I don't uh, know. I mean, I, I people always say that sort of thing, like, oh, how many people in the pews really pay attention to this? I think that a lot of people who practice the faith pay attention to what's happening in the world. I, I think a lot of people do. I, I don't think it's universal, and I yeah. I don't know that I would say a majority. I I don't know. That might I'm not, be. I'm not asserting as a fact that most Catholics have never heard of Bishop Strickland in the United States. I'm not saying that. But I would question it if somebody said, oh, for sure, every most Catholics have heard of Bishop Strickland. I, I don't know where I'd land on the over-under on that one. But I, I mean, it's not universal. Uh, it's getting more yeah. universal, but this is part of a sort of broader trend in in the way people engage with public affairs and the way people engage with stories and media and social media, and they're being exposed to um, issues that might otherwise not have percolated to the top because uh, the stories wouldn't get coverage, but also they're, you know, um, this is part of the rise of the, of the sort of ad hoc or amateur or um, opinion disguised as news or, or things like that, which, which are a part of the sort of broader, media landscape, certainly the political media landscape, but it's become part of the Catholic landscape too. Like there are people who will just make stuff up yeah, and, and put it out that like, there was a story I remember, was it last year? Maybe it was 18 months ago, but within the last two years, there was a story where it was like, there was a, there was a power outage uh, in, in Rome and a section of Rome that included Vatican city for a few hours. And like, it was a legitimate quote unquote trending news story on a bunch of different social media platforms that this was an Interpol raid on Vatican City to arrest the Pope. Like, it, it, people just make crap up. And it becomes, like, people are like, oh, that, did you hear about that? That's a real story. I read it on the internets. And it's like, eh. So, okay. uh, and, and I think that because Bishop Strickland has placed himself adjacent to things like political populist movements um, around election time and things like that, he's become sort of caught up as a media figure in that sort of world. And it makes it, I think, very hard for people to see him straight in a lot of cases. This is the second thing that I want to talk about. You went to it first, and that's totally fine. This is the second thing I want to talk about. Remind me that I want to come back to the first. But the second thing I want to talk about was the fact that, yeah, I think part of the Strickland phenomena is that Bishop Strickland, who I think is a, a, probably a well-intentioned person, has gradually over time amplified what he has said about the Pope, gradually over time. You saw this during the during COVID. He gradually over time, like, what he had to say about the virus, uh, about the vaccine, rather, what he had to say about the vaccine uh, got more and more um, strident and more and more sort of definitive and deliberative and polemical towards what the CDF had said and what the um, Pontifical Academy for Life had said over a period of time. And um, I think that Bishop Strickland is, among other things, representative of kind of the way in which algorithmic social media brainworms can escalate rhetoric and and entrench positions not just entrench positions but actually put people on a moving trajectory away from even where they begin towards things that are more and more unusual um, because of the feedback that they get for saying things which are more definitive and deliberative and because of the things which they're sort of shown algorithmically and just the power of sort of dopamine responses to saying strident things i think causes people sometimes to confuse like taking a firm oppositional perspective with necessarily telling the truth like well i must be telling the truth if i'm taking a firm oppositional perspective and if these perspectives are going viral 
I I agree with that. I would also add that it's a push-pull phenomena. That it's not just that, oh, I, I said something very strident and um, very emphatic, and a lot of people responded very well and it resonated with them. Also, it can be that you say something perfectly strident and emphatic that is actually entirely factually correct and reasonable to say, for example, on the issue of life or something like that. And then you look at the kind of lunatics who come and attack you and go, well, wait a minute, that's unhinged and totally wrong. And then that becomes a sort of hardening a hardening, and eventually hardened and defined group of people like, well, if those people who I now know are bad faith actors and wrong on basic issues of morality or the faith or whatever are criticizing me for saying this, they must be wrong about that right, too. Exactly. And so therefore That's I must right. be That's right. Perfect. And then yeah. every time you end up provoking that section, you go, well, I'm, I must be right because the bad if people are mad. you're doing something right. Yeah. If they yeah. hate you, you're doing something right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a way in which I think it was, um, Abby Alphavala said something that I thought was really important recently, which is like, basically you can have dispositional disagreement with someone and still find and still agree with them sometimes. And if that's impossible for you, if you sort of assess your own rightness based upon who disagrees with you, that's where you're in danger of slipping from firm commitment to intellectual positions to ideology. Yeah, which is, I mean, I'm I'm grateful we'll never have ideology as a pillar because I almost <laughs> never can inhabit an intellectual position that you don't disagree with. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, like, I think there is this, I think part of what's happening with Bishop Strickland is he may be the first, you know, Bishop Barron has made a big thing about being the bishop of the digital continent. But Bishop Strickland may actually be the first bishop of the digital continent in a very real way, which is to say, exhibiting the te- cultural tendencies and great sort of temptations and dangers of the of the digital continent. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of um, attempts to cast Bishop Strickland and the way his public engagement has sort of morphed and mutated over the last couple of months and years as a sort of you know cast him as a as a as a second Fulton Sheen. Right. And I don't know that I think No, you don't. That. You don't see that. You don't think that's true. No, I don't think that's it's true. not that you don't know that that's not one of the things I'm laughing about as we record the show is is that we are trying to be careful. We're being very careful to try to like talk about this in a fair minded way and to give the benefit of the doubt, to be charitable and to do all the pillar things. And we're being very careful not to just say like we think Bishop Strickland next Wednesday. But let's be honest, I hundred and fifty percent guarantee you we are gonna get a lot of critical feedback to this episode regardless of how careful we try to be about the way that we talk about this. And oh, to try I, to I'm not, I'm not trying to be um, careful and measured in my, in my comments and thoughts because I'm afraid about feedback. I mean, that's fine. People can get angry. I don't, I don't mind. It doesn't, you know, sometimes it amuses me when people get angry. So that's, that's all right. Um, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to myself cave into, Oh well, Bishop Strickland's nuts because you know these guys on YouTube that I happen to know are completely crazy, and charlatans love him. So therefore, you know, therefore, I, yeah, exactly. I don't want to slide into that either. And I, you know, like I said, as far as I'm concerned, there's I've drawn a big red line around Bishop Strickland's tweet saying I'm against the Holy Father's program to undermine the doctrine of the faith, and gone. Well, that's bad. That's very, very bad. You shouldn't do that. That's very. I mean, speaking with my canon lawyer, former canonical prosecutors had on, like, I would prosecute that. Like, that that's a case I'd take and I'd feel fairly confident fighting. Having drawn a line around that, but everything else, it's like, well, I, I don't want to judge Bishop Strickland or form an absolutist opinion on his motives or his methods or 
or the tone of what he says, except on the things he's actually done and said. And I, I try very hard in my head to sort out what I've heard Bishop Strickland say, what I've read Bishop Strickland write versus what I've seen other people say he said or other people write that he wrote, if that makes sense. It does. Because otherwise, we're no better than them. And and JD, I really want to be better than these people. <laughs> that matters a great deal to me. Okay, two things that – two more things. So I know I want to come back to the one thing, but two more things that I want to talk about. One that we haven't noticed. I think part of the – there are people who are pushing back because they think Bishop Strickland is, for them, a hero of the faith and all that. There are also people, even people who think Bishop Strickland is, you know – in excess or shouldn't have said that he will resist the Holy Father and these kinds of things, but who in part push back because they see or they perceive a hypocrisy in the Holy See's assessment and judgment of these things. They say, hey, the bishops of Germany, like there's a, you know, the Archbishop of Berlin told his priest that he won't um, sanction them if they bless same-sex unions. Strickland said some things that aren't nice about the Pope or misrepresent, even people who say Strickland misrepresented Catholic teaching on the vaccines, which I think he did. Strickland misrepresented Catholic teaching on the vaccines or Strickland is, has been um, ambiguous about election um, fraud. And, and, and these people say, even people who think who have a problem with those things say, yeah, but the Archbishop of Berlin told his priests he was not going to prosecute them for um, blessing same-sex unions. And where's the Holy Father there? And where was the Holy Father on Zanketa? And where was the Holy Father on sure. X, Y, and Z? And, and, and I get that. But you know what? Welcome to the show. Uh, <laughs> there's, there, is no, there is no human justice in the world and never has been and never will be. Does the Holy See look at the world asymmetrically? Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it's I just because, think that ought to be recognized. Of course. And it's 100% true. But you know that part of it is saying that is, that is absolutely the case. It is 100% the case. And the reasons for it are all of them bad. Why do Vatican departments come down harder on bishops in small Texan dioceses or corners of Puerto Rico versus German dioceses? I will tell you why. It is because German dioceses are rich and powerful, and the other ones aren't. And yeah, I just you know saw what? the Holy See. The, I just saw some statistics on how much the Church in Germany has distributed to the Church around the world last year, and it was hundreds of millions. I mean, it was a yeah, ton I, of money. I'm sorry that at a certain level in the Church, it's the law of Thucydides. You know, the the powerful do what they may, and the rich and the poor suffer, or the and weak suffer what they must. There's another reason, Ed. There's another reason, which is something which is true, and I think is okay to say. There are many people in the Holy See who don't like the cut of Bishop Strickland's jib, and who are more offended by his type than the type of the of the bishop you know than than the sort of outlandishness of the german bishops i think that is true and i think it would be naive to ignore that that's sure true. and it's also true that pope francis is from argentina and argentinians tend to not like americans not they like tend americans. to quite like germans you know that's now there's the sort of two quoque fallacy which says well if the, if you can point at someone's hypocrisy their actions are wrong the, yeah the holy see can be i'm not you know again i'm trying to take this impartially. I haven't seen the results of the apostolic visitation. You haven't seen the results of the apostolic nope. visitation. We do know that there are political elements to the Holy See's decisions on an Episcopal administration right now. So we can recognize there are those political elements. We can recognize at the same time, Bishop Strickland has said things which are possibly delictual, and we can recognize that we haven't seen the results. All of those things are true. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, and because we haven't seen the thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy See is right or wrong on um, on the Diocese of Strickland, because we haven't seen all the facts there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
Here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. Tell me. I'm curious. For most of us, the goings on in the diocese of Strickland are abstractions. Um, you know, even those people who pay attention very carefully to the sort of bishop's social media persona, they don't know the man. They know his social media persona. There is, you know, the, this no, this experience that people have of kind of what do they call it? false affinity, or what what do they call it where people feel like they know you because they know you online or on podcasts? Or uh, I believe that is a, a parasocial relationship. A parasocial relationship, right? And we have this experience. And for us, it's actually kind of fun where we go somewhere and people are like, oh, yeah, didn't you know about blah, blah, blah? Because they listen to the show. And so they feel like we have reciprocity and we always feel bad because we are just meeting them for the first time and they've met us many times. But the thing about a parasocial relationship or social media audience relationship is they don't really know the man. You know what I mean? Um, and so for those of us who are outside the diocese of Strickland, all of this is an ab abstraction, either sort of canonical academic abstraction as it is for us to some extent, or news coverage abstraction as it is just for some extent, or for many people, a kind of very politically charged and, and, and spiritually charged thing. It is not an abstraction. The situation for the that is unfolding with Bishop Strickland is not an abstraction, I think, for the presbyterate of the Diocese of Tyler and for the people who work in the Chancery in the Diocese of Tyler and for people who work in Catholic apostolates and ministries in the Diocese of Tyler. For them, it is my suspicion, having worked in chanceries, being close with many presbyterates, that having talked, having known how things felt for many of the priests and lay ecclesial ministers and deacons in the Diocese of Knoxville during their sort of long ordeal, um, it is not an abstraction for those folks. For those folks, I suspect this is a very heavy cross. And, you know, even people who are supportive of the bishop, probably this is a profound distraction and a difficulty for the diocese. Diocesan bureaucrats have a function in the life of the church, which is not unimportant. Pastors need to put a new roof on the parish or build out a pastoral center. And in order to do that, they have to take it to the building commission, the liturgical commission. They have to borrow money from the diocesan revolving fund. They have to submit their plans. They have to go through the finance. They do all these things which are built in for the sake of good governance and good leadership in the church. Schools which, are go which have a personnel problem, a teacher who didn't work out, need to go to the school's office and talk through things and get counsel and make sure they talk to a lawyer and do things in the right way. A pastor and his parochial vicar who are finding it impossible to work together in certain ways or whatever need to go to the vicar for clergy and work those things out. The the apparatus of the church, the bureaucratic bureaucratic apparatus of the church exists for the good of the kingdom. Now there are times when the bureaucratic apparatus of the church isn't aligned with the good of the kingdom and you know, or is an impediment to it or whatever, but the bureaucratic apparatus of the church is meant to exist for the good of the kingdom and for the work of the church. And these kinds of things can, in places which are suddenly plagued by this kind of controversy, grind the bureaucratic apparatus of the church to a halt, leaving things that need to be done undone. I know this from kind of following very closely and talking with many, many people in the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, as we covered the situation of Bishop Michael Hepner. I know this from talking with many, many folks in in the in, um, Stickerville, in um, Knoxville. I know this, you know, from just my own experience of like working even in a in a in a diocese during a time of a vacancy, you know, when you're waiting to sort of see what's going to happen, and everyone's sort of anxious and carrying that around. These things can weigh heavily, practically, personally, and spiritually on a presbyterate and the the lay staff of a diocese, a chancery, a parish, an apostolate. And I suspect that the longer things go on in strictly in Tyler the harder this will be for those people. Like whether whether you're a Strickland supporter or not, whether you think this is a good or bad thing, 
I, I just think, and I suspect the Holy See realizes that the escalating temperature in Tyler has a real human cost for like the marriages or spiritual health of the lady and who work in the chantry and the, and the, it's my guess. I'm not going to tell me, but the lady who work in the chantry or the presbyter of the place, like there's no way that's not the case. And I think that absolutely into, I I suspect that will, I, I, you know, I don't know the degree to which that factors into sort of Bishop Strickland's discernment about his own future. I don't know that factors into sort of the discernment about other bishops to talk with Bishop Strickland. And I don't know the degree to which that factors into the way that the Nuncio engages with Bishop Strickland. But it is a reality that these things can cripple a diocese and all of the things which actually have to happen in that diocese on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you know, the bishop is the father of a very large family. I mean, and I mean, many people have had the experience of, for example, a serious level of dysfunction in their own parish for whatever reason, you know. They've had a, a pastor, a parochial vicar, or even you know someone working in the parish who's been, a, you know, had a real problematic situation, been at the center of a really problematic situation, and it can cause the entire parish community to basically grind to a halt. The same is true, amplified when it's the bishop. I mean, it, it just, and it's not. I'm not saying you know, and it's the fault of such and such person. I mean, you can the, the situation can be imagined in a hundred different ways, but the reality is when that sort of. Um, dysfunctional atmosphere builds around the person who ultimately needs to make all of the decisions and and is at the center of the entire way that the governing apparatus is is set up i mean it's a huge suffering for everyone involved you know like you say it's and it's not just a sort of you know oh well it's hard to get stuff done at work it's like no if you've ever worked for or in an office that you know is basically brought to a standstill it's incredibly stressful you don't know what's going to happen next you don't know if your boss is going to be there in a few weeks or months, you don't know if your job is going to be there in a few weeks or months. You, you know, you're not privy to, for example, the apostolic visitation. And if you hear coming out of Rome that you know there are financial problems in the diocese, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your family? Does that mean you're going to be able to pay your mortgage? And then you bring all that home. You know, it's yeah. I, I, my heart absolutely goes out to people who are who are working not just in dioceses like Tyler, but as you said, you know, who have suffered through similar circumstances in places like Knoxville or. Crookston or, or places like that. I mean, it's not easy. And these are the people who, you know, keep the institutional church moving at the level with which we encounter it most frequently, the stuff that matters most to us, local Catholic schools, parishes, the, the, the stuff that matters to our daily lives as Catholics. Those are the people who are, you know, having to shoulder a lot here. And so, yeah, I absolutely, my heart goes out to them. Okay, well, there's more to say about that, Ed, but I think it is time. I mean, we've really been kind of going down a road here. Um, would you like to play a game? Oh, yeah, I didn't know we were playing games. Sure. I didn't know we were playing a game either, but I decided it might be time to play a little bit of a game. So we're going to play. If you, you decided, would, and you know, it is excellent. Yeah. See what I did there? Guerrilla marketing. We're going to play a little game, Ed, that I like to call Tyler Trivia. Okay. We've been talking about the Diocese of Tyler. And so now it is time to um, play a little Tyler trivia, if you would. All right. And the fun thing about this game is that you're not prepared for it, but neither am I. I have about five Tyler-related tabs open in my browser, and from those Tyler-related tabs, I am going to try to devise seven or so trivia questions and see how you do. Does that sound fun to you? Heck yes, Sundance. Let's grab hands and just jump off this cliff together. Okay, Ed, this man was the 10th president of the United States. Martin Tyler. Oh, so sorry. No? 
No, let's try again. First, I'll give you a hint. This man who was the 10th president of the United States has the most common presidential first name of them all. John. John Tyler. Ed, you did it on the second try. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Who is Martin Tyler? I haven't the slightest. That name fell off my tongue very, very easily. There's Someone is called Martin Tyler. Martin Tyler, if you're listening, who are you? Ed, John Tyler, as you probably know, is the 10th president of the United States. He was in office from April 4th, 1841 to March 4th, 1845. But you probably know, Ed, that um, John Tyler was not elected president. Um, rather, he was elected this man's vice president. Uh... Garfield? Oh, no. Close. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, it's so I'll give to... you a hint. It wasn't Benjamin Harrison. Oh, this is oh, this is the guy who got pneumonia because he didn't wear a coat to his own inauguration and he got pneumonia or something and died and he was only in office for like five days or, or like three months or something, right? This is the fellow who didn't wear a coat to his inauguration. Oh, come on. It wasn't Benjamin Harrison. You keep saying it wasn't Benjamin Harrison. Ding, 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 ding. You're right, Ed. It was William Henry Harrison. <laughs> the 1841, the 1840, excuse me, the 1840 Harrison Tyler presidential, vice presidential ticket, Ed, campaigned under this slogan. Uh, Wait, John Tyler trivia is really fun. The, the, uh, he's Okay. He's okay, final answer? Yeah. And Tippy Canoe. Oh, and, and Tyler, Tyler too. Yeah, that was yeah, a yeah, sure. and they rolled a ball. <laughs> there was a, I'm not kidding, there was like a ball yeah, they that did they roll rolled down the state. Yeah, that was a the, man our politics used to be really stupid. I, I mean, agree. that's just I, I mean, a lot of times you look like, "Oh, wow, that's cool in old time." It's like, "No, that's just if some guy is saying Tippy Canoe and Tyler too and I'm rolling a giant bob like well, he sounds like a loser. I'm voting for the other guy. Ed, the city of Tyler, Texas, was legally recognized by the Texas State Legislature in 1846. It was named for this man. Watt Tyler, leader of the Peasants' Revolt in medieval England. Oh, so close. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't Tippy Canoe. So was it President ding, Tyler? Ding, 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 President John Tyler. You did it, Ed. Well done. I feel like there's a – most of the Tyler trivia is – the answer is – President Tyler. Most of the Tyler trivia, the answer is President Tyler. That's a prominent Wikipedia tab I have open right now for what it's worth. Ed, (laughs) the surname Tyler, which is an old English name derived from a French word and a Middle English word, means this. Um, It's not Tippy Canoe. (laughs) Yes, I'm aware that the answer to this question is Tyler, but... (laughs) I'm trying to think what the actual trade that this is supposed to be. Is it someone who like literally does tiles, like lays tiles? Yes, indeed, at a tile maker. You got it. Probably hey. lays tiler at the same time. Well, how about okay, that? Okay, you ready for some more? <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've, I've, got the, I've got my eye in now. I've, I've got, I can read the pitches now. So let's go. Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden was the star of this popular 1999 film. 10th president of the United States, John Tyler. <laughs> Final answer? No, it was Fight Club. Good, Ed. If it's Rex Manning Day, you might be hanging out with this famous Tyler. Uh, At the record store. At the record store? You don't know what Rex Manning Day is at all? 
No, I've never heard of Rex Manning. Who is Rex Manning? Empire Records, 1995 cult classic, Luke oh, Tyler. Oh, the one with um, the Aerosmith's daughter. Aerosmith's daughter. Yes. And if you're I, listening to this rock band, the front man might be named. If you're listening to the rock Tyler, band, Aerosmith, the front man um, might be named. Uh, I did Steve Tyler. Steven Tyler. Well done. Have you had enough? Uh, I think other people may have. I could do this all day. <laughs> I, I've got more Tyler. Let me just ask no, you some I'm more No, I'm going to draw first. a line under this sorry affair. We're going to transition seamlessly into the bonus episode because I want to do camp chat because there's a lot of questions yeah, I gonna, have. We are going to wrap this up for, for oh, uh, Ed, this American actress is the winner of seven Primetime Emmy Awards and three Golden Globe Awards. Liv Tyler? Come on, Ed. She's going to make it. Liv Tyler? She's going to make, I mean, she's going to make it after all. Oh, Mary Tyler Moore. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. Stick around for a bonus episode. Now for your hat in the air.